Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. I'm really excited for today's conversation. Christopher Carter has a new book coming out soon on black veganism and soul food, and he was gracious enough to share a few chapters with me and sit down and talk about it. We talk about food, faith, and how black veganism can be both an outgrowth of Christianity and concerns for social justice, and how it should incorporate concerns for humans as well as non-human animals. This was recorded while both of us had a short break from childcare, so we set a hard cutoff, and then of course, after we stopped recording, we went on to have a really interesting conversation about activism around growing food, and the sometimes difficult outreach to get people to start growing food if they don't have experience with it. I, hopefully when his book actually comes out, we can get him back on to talk again. But for now, let me read Christopher's biography. The Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter's teaching, research, and activist interests are in black, womanist, and environmental ethics, with a particular focus on race, food, and non-human animals. He's the co-creator of Racial Resilience, an anti-racism and anti-bias program that utilizes the combined insights of contemplative practices and critical race theories. His academic publications include The Spirit of Soul Food, which is the book we're discussing in this conversation, and which will be available from the University of Illinois Press this November, and Blood in the Soil, the Racial, Racist, and Religious Dimensions of Environmentalism in the Bloomsbury Handbook on Religion and Nature from 2018. He's an assistant professor and assistant chair of the Theology and Religious Studies Department at the University of San Diego and a Faith in Food Fellow at Farm Forward. Through Farm Forward, he's currently working on a project aimed at helping black religious organizations adopt sustainable food practices through small-scale farming and connecting organizations with farmers for direct-to-consumer sales. Um, and if Farm Forward sounds interesting to you, uh, I'd point you at the episode where we talked to Joey Tuminello, uh, who's also associated with Farm Forward. But for now, here's my conversation with Christopher Carter. How are you doing? Eh, you know, it's uh, a <laughs> grading and trying to take care of a kid and all this other kind of stuff. Sounds like you're doing some, <laughs> both some uh, professing and uh, homeschooling right now, so. Yep, it's keeping me on. I mean, I think that being on both sides of that sort of line has been helpful for me, though, just for, for keeping me epistemically humble, you know? Like when uh, my students send me an email complaining that they don't understand my instructions, I can't really lose my, temp my patience with them since I don't understand what the elementary school teachers explaining things to my students are saying half the time either. So it's kept me grounded, but is is stressful. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Like a bit, this in terms of just how we're trying to figure out how to teach this particular way, especially for elementary school, like elementary, junior high, junior high, maybe a little bit, but elementary school, I just, I mean, I couldn't pay attention and didn't pay attention <laughs> when I was that age. Yeah. So trying to get kids to learn that way. Um, I mean, I know we're taking a very different approach to a lot of other countries with respect to closing down schools rather than closing down other things. So I've had a lot of, um, and again, my son's only a year and a half old. So, you know, like I don't have to worry about that. But um, I know other countries are taking a different approach. And I, I wonder about the impact this is going to have um, on women, actually, more specifically, but just on like families in general trying to navigate. Like, because my mother, you know, when we were growing up, I mean, she couldn't have stayed home to like watch us. You know what I'm saying? Like she would have basically mm -hmm. just been like, hey, you guys got to figure it out. 
even if we were young, like that's just what we had to do. So, um, so yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the amount of time that, uh, parents are supposed to spend monitoring their children was always on the increase anyway, over the last 50 to a hundred years. You know, if you think about how much free time just to play on your own, you had unsupervised by any adults. So this has accelerated that process for sure. Plus I, you know, like my younger son is in kindergarten and technology like this can perfectly replicate all the bad parts about kindergarten. So mm. having to sit up straight and listen to your teacher and pay attention and do homework for the first time, that's, they, they can do all of that online perfectly. But the parts of kindergarten that are fun, like socializing with your friends, meeting mm -hmm. new people, uh, playing at stations, like playing with Play-Doh, none of that comes across a Zoom meeting, you know? Yep. Yeah. And like that stuff is ridiculously important. Like that's, I mean, I mean, granted, you do learn stuff in kindergarten that's helpful, but those are the kind of social skills that actually stay with you in terms of just how to work with people and be around other people and share. I mean, <laughs> imagine, imagine if we have a generation of kids who struggle sharing. I mean, I feel like that's not yeah. where we're at right now, but yeah, that's, that's insane. Yeah, we're having a we're having a full on uh you know uh mass experiment. Like you would never somebody with a PhD in education or pedagogy would never have gotten IRB approval to conduct the experiment that we're doing around the country right now. So I guess we'll see what happens. That'll be fun. <laughs> that's a great that that is a great and I'm going to use that when I talk about this in my next faculty meetings. I'm like that's an excellent point. So uh, um, so you're from Michigan originally? Yeah, I'm originally from Michigan. Yep. Whereabouts? Battle Creek, Michigan. Okay, um, great. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. So I guess you know. No, right, cool. I, yeah. I, well, I was. Uh, I got my PhD at Michigan State. Oh, and to Michigan State. So we lived in Lansing for five years. I went to Michigan State, and um, yeah, we loved Lansing. So that was honestly um, some of the best time of our life. I mean, that's usually undergrad anyway, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's nice, and uh, there's a lot of really impressive work that happens in Michigan on food justice. Like I spoke earlier in an earlier podcast to some friends of mine that work uh, out of Grand Rapids at our kitchen table on food sovereignty and this really radical, like just really theoretically laden praxis, but also very practical and grounded in the community. It's very impressive out there. Yeah, what's, what's interesting is I wasn't, <laughs> I left Michigan to go to graduate school before I was really interested in all this stuff. Like I, I didn't really know what exactly I was going to do at this point in my life. I was just going to, I knew I was going to to probably at least be a clergy person and so mm -hmm. i feel like as i've grown into my interest in food and animal work and really broadly understood e ecology as i would argue um <laughs> there's all this stuff happening in michigan and, and, um, and like i feel like i'm missing out on something even though there's no way in hell <laughs> i would ever want to go back um right. because it's cold and I live in san diego and it's you know i'm outside right now and it's 70 degrees and beautiful so you know yeah, the the winter before we moved down here to South Texas, um, that Christmas, the there was freezing rain and the power went out for eight days. And so me and my whole family, including people that were visiting and, and pets, were in the one room that had a fireplace <laughs> for eight days. So, uh, yeah, you know, that, that part, that part I don't miss. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane. Like, I mean, I live, we lived there until we moved here. I was 27. So I spent most of the vast majority of my life in Michigan. And I miss... Sometimes I miss the people, um, even when I go back home. I mean, I, got, I miss getting into random conversations with, like, the grocery store clerk because they're just people talk to you there in a different way that they don't do in California, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't miss the racism and the, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the cold. I'm like, and that's, there's not racism in sure. California. There is, but 
it's a lot less. So it's and it's it's a different it's a different flavor. You know, it's it's good to change it up every once in a while. <laughs> it is. Maybe, maybe racism is easier for me to take when I'm warm. That's maybe that's, that's, right. <laughs> that's sure. Yeah, you know, like at least you're not wearing a parka as you have to experience it. Exactly. Um, exactly. So I so I took a look at the uh, preface and introduction to your book, which is really exciting. Like I really really enjoyed reading that. Um, I can't wait for it to come out. Not to pressure you. I'm sure you're working on it and everything's fine. Oh no, it, deadlines. It's a in i mean it should be it's gonna be out sometime this summer i'm not hopefully early summer um yeah now we're just working on cover art and stuff like that oh fantastic yeah it's it's closer um it would have been out earlier but pandemic really just kind of screwed everything up so um so yeah no it's 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 exciting i'm really i mean i'm just i'm glad it's almost over (laughs) but yeah (laughs) right yeah that's why i was you know i was nervous about uh you know if you were in the midst of fighting with reviewers on chapter two or something i didn't want (laughs) to stress you out reminding you about it but um you use some terms uh in the book that i think are really interesting um so maybe let's just work through some of those first for our listeners and then we can talk about your like the theoretical work that you're doing um so what do you mean by soulful eating Mm -hmm. yeah so for me soulful eating is a way to kind of connect or at least a, a term i'm using to connect kind of ethics and spirituality and the consumption of food um and so it's more like a conscious eating um that is particularly i think rooted in the way i'm arguing for it out of the black or experience you know the black diasporic mm-hmm. experience i would say um but it's a way of eating that takes seriously the the implications of our diet that it has on a planet uh, that it has on, on people um and that has on our own bodies right um in in ways that i think are honestly, I think that are crucial for us, for Black people, I should say, that's what I'm talking about, for Black people to really be able to flourish um, as we move forward in a racist world. Uh, I think for me that that's what has inevitably, I think, in, in some sense, sustained our communities, the way in which we've been able to kind of um, create a kind of sacred space, whether it be in the kitchen or in other sacred places. And so I'm trying to find a way to kind of articulate that and, and so people can do it more consistently uh and consciously um to attend to help attend to the just the structural evil that i think we face on a day-to-day basis sure so yeah that's kind of connected to i mean like one of the focuses of the book seems to be on soul food so maybe you could just uh explain what you mean by that term i mean it's, it's one of those words that everybody knows but they tend to think of it merely as particular dishes or particular ingredients but how you're using soul food and a little bit about the history of it, both as food and as a term. Yeah, so I'm using, I guess in some ways, I'm, I'm using soul food um, as kind of like a black or vernacular, really to talk about like Southern black, well, originated, I would say, Southern black food ways. Um, and there's definitely this kind of like blend between Southern cooking and, and, and soul food. I guess what we would distinguish soul food would be kind of who is preparing it and, and, and the intention that goes with it in terms of, um, it, it, you know, like who, so not, so who is preparing it, but also thinking critically about like, what, what's it for, right? It's not just for like entertainment, like it really is this sense of nourishment that goes along with it. Um, and so that's kind of like, I guess, broadly speaking, what I mean, H- historically, the term became popularized during the civil rights movement, a little bit earlier. Um, and it really came into fashion in the North as a way to kind of articulate and 
conceptualize or I guess give give language to the ways in which people who had migrated north in a great migration, how they could eat these foods that connected them to their roots in the south. Um, and so for them, eating soul food was a way for them to feel like it, it, there's an affective dimension to eating, right? There's an affective dimension to sure. eating soul food, especially I think for during that era for black people who are really trying to um, talk about self-determination and what this means and constructing an identity outside of the framework of whiteness, right? This has always been the uh, a, a project uh, for, for black people in America. But in this particular moment, it, it's really, it becomes more critical. And there's a kind of a lifting up of this culinary expertise as a way of eating into itself that is representative of who we are, right? That's representative of the best of black people and how, you know, we can make a way out of no way in terms of taking things that other people have thrown away or don't think taste good that we can actually really, um, you know, cook in ways that make it delicious. And so um, I think that's kind of how the term, it's how the term got popularized. I mean, it's obviously um, transcended black culture. And I think a lot of people kind of conflate soul food and, and Southern food. But generally speaking, when you say soul food, people are going to think about food that black people cook and eat on special occasions. You know, we talk a lot uh, with a lot of different guests in this podcast about the ways that food is built into narrative and identity and, you know, has this sort of affective dimension, as you're saying, um, particularly the way that it connects us to tradition, right, to sort of heritage uh, dishes and ingredients, things like that. Um, but your project is to recast uh, some aspects of soul food, or at least some of the ingredients, right? So you're arguing for um, eating less or no animal products. How does that, like, what, what's the challenge uh, in trying to transform a tradition while still, I would imagine, having some, you know, honor and respect and uh, care for those roots? Yeah, thank, that's a great question because it is, a, it is and it isn't a challenge, <laughs> which, which, is kind of a, which is kind of a cop-out answer. I will say that um, how it, I, I'll say the second part for how it isn't a challenge is Honestly, some of it comes around with like just cooking, like literally learning how to cook things in different ways that capture the same kind of tastes and senses and and smells that um, so that you can't so the distinction between eating like a vegan red beans and rice versus a red beans and rice that has pork in it um, that there really is, is is a small distinction between the two, um, and so that's where I would say it, it, it isn't necessarily challenging. Um, you just have to learn how to prepare foods that way. Where it is challenging, I guess I, I would go and say, is that um, foodways, particularly Black foodways, have had to evolve for lots of different reasons. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of build an, on that historic evolution. And so I'm reminded, um, I think in, in the book, I, I talk about my grandfather a lot, actually. My grandfather was really one of the inspirations of, of the text. And so he grew up really poor. Um, he was born in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and was like a migrant picker. Um, and so kind of worked on different farms for most of his life and ultimately wanted to be a farmer, but for many different reasons, wasn't able to do, well, the primary reason is just Jim Crow racism, drove him right. north to Michigan to get a um, factory job. And so uh, my grandpa, when he would be talking about um, just growing up, what he had to do and the kind of things he would eat. And what I learned from him was that they just didn't eat, like they didn't eat a lot of meat. Like the stuff they ate, like he may have eaten eggs, right? They may have occasionally had, they would have had meat sometimes, but the kind of income that he had, again, being fairly poor, and even within his community where people did have money, 
meat consumption was just drastically less than what it is now. And so what that helped me understand was that there's always been this kind of evolution within the within all of our dads, or particularly within a black culinary experience, right? Like it has consistently evolved. He wouldn't say he grew up vegan, but generally speaking, I would say he, he spent the majority of his life until he was 16, veg, mostly vegetarian. Um, and that was just pretty normal for people down there. They would eat, again, they would eat meat. It was just not as nearly as consistently as people might otherwise think. Um, and so that gave me the courage, I think, to kind of make this argument, um, to know that people could do it. Um, and he was like, he was like my primary, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Like taste tester, I guess I would say. Like I would make <laughs> these things and I would be like, How's, what, do, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Because I trust his palate. But also for him, especially and people of his generation, these foods tell a story that connects them to their ancestors who were still enslaved. Right. Like they're not we're not that far removed from slavery. Sure. And so and so when he can eat something and say, no, this this tastes this tastes really good. It tastes different. Right. But it still tastes really good. That gave me the that, that gave me the confidence to know that not only could this project be successful, but that people could do it and could replicate it. Um, and 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 that it, w- it would still allow us to tell that story. Right. Like I could still tell the story. I can still tell my grandfather's story through food, just like my, you know, um, even though the foods have evolved and shifted and changed in terms of some of the ingredients, but the primary, um, the primary ingredients, right? Some of those core uh, aspects of that narrative that really, again, has allows that affective dimension to exist is still present, and that for me is 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 key. That's the crucial ingredient to soul food that makes it unique, um, and I think that gives it this kind of transformative capacity that I'm trying to to leverage in my argument. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, you write in the book that you're trying to build up. Uh, like a black veganism uh, Mm -hmm. contrasted with, I mean, and I I say this as somebody who is a vegan, the stereotype of a privileged white person with too much money who, you know, sees veganism as another uh, consumption choice that they can make along with fair trade coffee and I don't know, driving a Tesla or whatever. Uh, So, you know, so what is, um, what makes uh, your vision of veganism different than that? That that was a that was a funny joke. The Tesla. I was thought you were gonna say Prius. That's what I thought you were gonna say. No, Prius. It's, like, it's, like, it's, Priuses don't cost enough money for it to really be a, sh- a flex. I I lived okay. in Marin County for a while, if you know California, and uh, yeah, and so it's a. Uh, I would tell people that I was vegan, and I would always have to say for moral reasons quickly afterwards before they'd say, "Yeah, cool. Yeah, you know, I think that's really healthy." I'm like, no, I can I can eat potato chips and beer for breakfast. It's not <laughs> it's not healthy. And I think actually your your point. You're, you're really articulating a big, a big reason why I think it's important to draw that distinction in, in terms of people, many people, particularly white women, I would say probably the primary um, folks and people think of someone that's vegan, um, can adopt this way of eating as a means of, for health reasons or for reasons to talk about sustainability or for any other kind of way in which they want to be distinct, right? Um, and that's fine. Like, I have no problem with that. I think, well, I shouldn't say that. I have some problem with it. But like, if you, <laughs> if, if, if you want to do that, I think that's sure. in and of itself a good, right? I think there's shortcomings to that way of thinking, but I think it's in and of itself good. So part of the reason I want to draw that distinction and talk about Black veganism, and I want to be clear too, I, this is a term that was developed that I first heard from Af and Sil Co in their book, Afroism. Um, and I'm really good friends with Sil. And so I really, I, I told her when I was writing the book, you know, I, when I first came across that term, I was like, well, I'm just going to take that term and kind of like 
Christianize it a little bit. <laughs> she, she, she's not a Christian. She's a philosopher. So she's kind of like, well, it's okay as long as you know, respect it, which I did. I think, I think she thinks I did. So that's the most important thing. But um, the reason Black veganism is important is because there has to be some distinction between the folks who think about veganism as a as a health way of being in the world or, or veganism that doesn't take seriously the importance of all the lives that are connected to the non-human animal life that are impacted by our particular choice, right? And so this is why I talk a lot about ontology. And and so I'll talk about like, you know, regular veganism, or I guess, you know, um, white veganism, however you want to frame it, um, as this, it, it's really this, um, black veganism represents a kind of ontological shift in which you're trying to think consciously about the interconnectedness between not only the non-human animal you're consuming, but also the ways in which this, again, dietary practice impacts the planet and particularly how it impacts people of color. Um, and so, you know, like, I, I remember, uh, you know, when I teach these things in, in my courses or I, or I talk to people about why I'm vegan and I tell them it's for moral reasons for me, it's for distinctly religious reasons that are connected to my Christian faith. People, similar to what you said, they're very surprised. But when I go to, on to explain to them how these, like, like factory farms, like who works there and how they're harmed, particularly, I mean, with right now with COVID, it's, it's especially terrible. Um, and the communities that those places are in and, and how, and how those communities are harmed, how the ecology around them are harmed. I talk about the people who work in the fields that are even just growing vegetables, how they're harmed. And so what I want people to understand is that when we think about trying to eat in a way that's anti-oppressive, that we can't just center it on non-human animals like that that are fluffy because it makes us feel good, right? So there's a way in which that distinction really dismisses all the other lives that are at stake or that suffer as a consequence of people consuming animal products in the way they do. Um, and so that's why I, I, I say that because I want people to, I need to think. I really want to, I, that's, that's really what I think my big part of my argument is just to think before you eat. And, and to draw that kind of connection between what you consume and how it impacts others. And that isn't something I see in the popular vegan movement. It's, it's really a kind of a self-centered, I mean, it is kind of a self-centered veganism, right? Black veganism really is about the broader community, right? It really, at, at, at its core, is about the preservation and promotion of not only black people, but people of color um, and, you know, non-human animals. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I bet most, I bet all vegans would say, well, it isn't self-centered because I'm concerned about others, specifically non-human animals. But I think you're right. You're pointing at something important, which is that it's kind of a, a clean hands ethic a lot of the mm -hmm. time. So the, the self-centeredness is on is, is centering on your own moral purity, that you want to make sure that you are doing the right thing, that you are not, or rather that you're not doing a bad thing so that you can sort of get a pass, you know, rather than looking at systems as something to try to dismantle. That's why I think it's great that you're centering your grandfather in this book, because thinking about the workers all along the food chain, um, you know, something that if you're concerned about the injustice and the harms that our food chain does, the, the real problem with uh, harm to non-human animals can kind of overwhelm that examination sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and I think for me, it was easier to kind of draw those distinctions because being black, Right, I'm looking at and dealing with racism and racialization such that you're constantly dealing with the human-animal tension, the ways in which Black people have been animalized. I mean, that's honestly what led me to veganism. 
um, that was the beginning of my conversion, I guess, <laughs> to use that term. Um, and and so I, I agree with your in what you said. In, in as much this notion of moral purity, I think, is really steeped in, in the logic of whiteness. This idea that I need to, it's a very individualistic kind of way of thinking about morality um, that kind of obviously has its roots in kind of, you know, Christian theological understandings. Um, but it's a way for you, again, like you said, to have these clean hands and say, okay, I, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's you all, and I'm not, I can't change the broader system. I can control myself, uh, and I only can do things for myself, rather than actually looking at all those who are harmed and actually having some, I use the word compassion a lot in the book, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and I think that's crucial. You know, it's, it's really not seeing yourself as interconnected. Um, and, and I do think there's something to be said too about the people, white people's especially ability to connect to non-human animals and empathize with them in a way in which they, that they haven't really wrestled with their own anti-black racism that's, that's embedded within our culture that makes them resist this kind of, or not, I won't say resist this, this argument, because when I make it, I think generally speaking, a lot of vegans tend to agree, and I can kind of move them along this path, but it helps them be blind to it, right? But they just don't think, they're just not thinking about it, because they don't have to, because that's how privilege works. Yeah, I just, there's a bunch of things I want to say or ask you about off of that, but let me start with um, this idea of you being willing to wrestle in this book about a, sort of a white supremacist conflation of people of color and non-human animals as sort of like on one side of a line, you know, or, you know, maybe it's a spectrum, but farther over toward the animal side, right. than toward the, the, the real human side. Um, and that's something that feminists have wrestled with, like Carol J. Adams writes about that um, for, you know, women being seen as animalistic. Um, and she has said that one of the responses that a lot of women have taken is to try to move the line to say, well, no, look, you should think of me as a full human. So the line between good, valuable, worthwhile, morally humans and non-humans is still maintained. But, you know, I want to be on the inside of that circle. Um, and she has gotten a lot of pushback or she got a lot of pushback when she first started talking about this in the 70s uh, from women who resented the idea that saying um, feminism ought to encompass a compassion for non-human animals because it seemed to them like she was sort of accepting the argument that women are like animals. Is that, I mean, is that something that you've had to wrestle with too when you're talking about this with uh, black people? I think initially, um, what really helped me kind of think through this is my incorporation of a lot of decolonial thinking, particularly yeah. um, Walter Mignolo was really, really helpful. Um, and in part because I realized that the human animal tension, I mean, some people call it the problem of the animal, however you want to frame it, is really premised on this hierarchy that distinguishes. I talk about race in the book, but I agree with Carol. I mean, she's Carol and I actually just talked about this. I saw Carol in February of not this past February, the one before that. Um, and we were talking about it then. <laughs> this this way in which <laughs> this, this this hierarchy um, that's created between men, particularly white men, and everybody else. And so to argue for equal humanness within this construction of the human, but you really it's, it's, you're arguing for a tacit acceptance of the logic that normalizes oppression. You're just arguing for different yeah. groups to be oppressed, right? And so if you want to actually undermine and dismantle the logic that normalizes and justifies racism and this kind of, um, and, and patriarchy and sexism, 
then you have to attend to the question of the animal because because the animal has been used again as a means to distinguish between human and non-human um, in ways that have proven to be deeply disadvantageous to people of color and to women. Um, and so that's basically my argument. I was like, you know, are you arguing for to be equal with the oppressor or to eliminate oppression? Right? Like that's that's really the that at the at the bottom at the, at the bottom line that's that's the question. And so uh, I think framing it like that has been more helpful because um, then people can then I think it's it's more persuasive and also just drawing on people's experience. And so I don't write this in the book mostly because I don't necessarily think I need to. But I'll be surprised if most black people haven't had somebody call them some kind of animal. Like this is just mm-hmm. like if you grew up in America, um, sure. You know this is, and so like you know that you know that exists, like you know. <laughs> and so, and so to, to to then again go back and say, well, uh, to to try to move the line, as you said, to say, well, don't include me in the humans, um, is to just give this tacit acceptance to that construction. And I think ultimately, if the project is to dismantle. Um, oppression if it's to actually eliminate the logic that normalizes and supports racism then we have to really we have to attend to it we have to put it to the front of our conversations in the way we think and talk about racism even um because to do otherwise it really would be to um allow us to create a, a situation where we could be racist to other people i mean think about what's happening right now with chinese folks in this country with regards to covid19 you know um and, and almost what happens in any kind of war, right? You think about what happens to the Japanese or World War II. Um, you know, we can't we can't sit back and say it's okay to treat other folks like this, just not us, right? If that that's that's not my project, and I think that should be that's not that's not the Black Liberation Project, and it shouldn't be at least. Yeah, and I I love uh, that you take a lot of things from liberation theology um, and incorporate that into this book. What's the connection for you between faith and food? I think for me, it's really about how food impacts um, both non-human nature and like, well, I should say how just food impacts ecology, you know, it's a better way to say it. And so mm-hmm. for me, as, as being, being a Christian, I feel like I'm, you know, I take the gospel very seriously. I, 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 will, I will say this, I should say this too, like, so I consider myself more like a, a Christian in the framework of Howard Thurman, where he would talk about how he followed the religion of Jesus. Um, and so while I'm a United Methodist clergy person um, and I identify as a Christian, the kind of Christianity that I practice really takes that way of Jesus super serious <laughs> in, in ways that sometimes is met with resistance. Um, because for me, it can be, it, it's inclusive of these kinds of things, like the way I eat. Um, because so there's, for instance, you, you look at these, uh, what, what I understand Jesus to be, uh, leading folks to do in his own particular lifetime, um, or within the gospel text, right? This notion of coming to serve the poor, those who are marginalized, disenfranchised to usher in this kind of new reign, this new way of being in the world. Um, theologian, uh, Dolores Williams, she talks about finding salvation by reflecting what she called the ministerial vision of Jesus, right? This idea of what it means to be in community and relationship and to serve each other. And for me, that is just very persuasive. Um, It feels like what I see and what I read in the Gospels being lived out. And so for me, the practice of my Christianity can't just be tied to a simple confession of faith. It has to be rooted in action. Um, You know, uh, the one of my favorite 
this is how you know I'm a theologian. One of my favorite books of the Bible is <laughs> James, where he talks a lot about, the writer talks a lot about being a doer of the word and not just a hearer who deceives themselves. And I think that's really important for me, right? To know that my faith should contribute to the uplift of others, right? I should be able to see the suffering of the world um, as God's suffering and then feel compelled to do something about it. Um, and so that for me is, is how it, that's how I got started. That's how I got connected. I think every day I'm trying to do a little bit better, whether it be with my diet or, you know, just any number. I mean, we're looking at, you know, trying to figure out a different kind of water heater for our house. And I mean, we just do just little things, but we hope that every day we can, I do little things that ultimately add up to big things and can help contribute to larger structural change as well. Um, and it's all tied to my commitment to what I think it is to be a Christian and to go down a spiritual path. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is interesting because on the one hand, it's not disconnected from colonialism and white supremacy and racism historically, right? And imposing uh, particular Western conceptions of human and non-human, not to mention uh, racial categories and all kinds of things were justified through Christianity and sort of placed onto uh, colonized and settled people against their will. Um, and yet... Also, it, it, I mean, you know, if you read liberation theology um, and some of the things that had come out of South America through the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, it has a potential to be something other than that. But it's this, this sort of dual nature that's really uh, complicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus was a colonized, you know, Palestinian Jew, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so, so this whole, this whole message, right, of this gospel is this kind of decolonial approach. It's a way to assert your own. Um, humanity and your self-worth and value in the midst of, of, of a society that dehumanizes folks, right? To this radical uh, commitment to love yourself and to love your neighbor and to love God. Like that in and of itself, at the time, this message would have been received, but I've just, it would have been transformative. It was an extremely radical message that often gets watered down to the degree in which it's used, like you said, for all kinds of colonial justifications. And so I think people throughout history, right? And it's it's like there's all these different moments in Christian history where you can look at, see people like really going back and diving deep to kind of recapture that essence and spirit of, of the spiritual path of Jesus. Um, and, 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 and now I think we're living, or at least, you know, with liberation theology, whether it be black liberation theology, or as you mentioned, South American liberation theology. Um, I think people are trying to recapture that. Um, and also, you know, people are, are human, you know, so another part of the story and I talk about in the book is on my dad's side of family, um, my dad's side of family is Spanish. So they're mixed Spanish and black and my, his, my father's, uh, my father's grandparents were the first, um, uh, Carter's born in America, even though the last name wasn't Carter. Um, and, and so they were drivers. Like so they came so they so they were actually working on plantation as essentially the white people overseeing the black labor, right? And that's how mm -hmm. they that's how I met uh what it would be my great grandmother. And so um I see that and I, I think we have to acknowledge that that part of the, the history, right? With respect to not only Christianity, but even for me with respect to this project as well. Um, is that history is there and we have to acknowledge it and not hopefully allow uh folks to um continue to abuse it um so it's it's beyond a difficult project that's even getting gotten harder given our current social political climate 
one of the lessons that you do take from it that you talk about in the book is this idea about a third way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about what, what you mean by that? Yeah, so that really is this kind of notion of following the spiritual path of Jesus, this kind of um, nonviolent social resistance, this commitment to um, that doesn't get caught up in this idea of fight or flight, right? And so there's this <clears throat> way in which psychologists talk about how when we become reactive, like emotionally, right, um, that often uh, because of human evolution, we think about either having to fight to defend ourselves um, or to flee and kind of run away um, to protect ourselves. This this third way really isn't is is is, a, is to encourage us to not um, to resist, right? But to do so in ways that actually allow us to um, create this to do it sustainably. Really, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, really to resist the structural evil of as I'm writing about in the book with respect to, to food injustice um, by, you know, um, not dehumanizing folks who have created these systems, but rather inviting them into right relationships and hopefully help us create alternative food systems. So I talk a lot about, you know, in the end of the book, I talk a lot about not just like make community gardens. I mean, that's cool or whatever, but really like taking like church land and like turning it into farmland, right? Like, like mm -hmm. literally being like, how can we resist this, this structure in ways that um, can allow us to create jobs for our community, people growing the food, to feed our communities, right? To then empower people to actually get active in their local legislatures with regards to eliminating some of the zoning rules that allow grocery stores to like leave and to not have a grocery, another grocery store built there for a different amount of time, you know, so people have to have all these kind of problems with access to food. Um, and so this third way of being in the world really is this, what I'll call a way of compassion, a way of loving the self that um, pushes you and, and, and encourages you to take this work seriously, because it is um, transformative. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's essentially what I mean. So we're talking about nonviolent social resistance with respect to, in, in the book I'm talking about with respect to, to food injustice. Yeah. And one of the, like, as you said earlier, one of the central sort of ideas to that and to the whole book is this idea of compassion that, you know, that that is both uh, a motivation to do some of this work, but also kind of a, a, a guide to what path to take as you're working on it. Yeah. So the first, <laughs> the first two drafts of the book, I don't know if you were like this when you became vegan, but since you're, since you're vegan, I, I can, I'll confess this to you. So like when you know, you, you first like, figure something out and you're just like i think there's a lot of like vegan evangelical folks out there that are just like oh you have to do this and and um you you aren't very persuasive because you make you turn a lot of people off and so right. for me as, as an ethicist once i made this connection between the animalization of black people and how these particular way of eating harms black people i was like well then logically we shouldn't eat this way like just makes sense to me like it to me it was just like literally like a plus b plus c right <laughs> you just follow mm -hmm. this and, and so i wrote the first draft of the book that way the first two drafts and I, the feedback i got never critiqued my argumentation but i i felt like there was resistance into the way i was writing it People, you know it didn't have i think like the book was better than the feedback i was getting like there would be some pushback on different things i was saying and one person one reviewer Ultimately, I feel like question my ability to connect and relate to black people. And then I was like, all right, well, let me step back because obviously I'm black and that's not what I'm trying to do, <laughs> you know. Um, so what am I missing? And what I realized is that in, in conversation with people, I never 
talked the way I was writing in the book. In conversation with people, I was much more understanding, right? People have to feel heard. They have to feel valued. They feel understood. Feel understood. And, and, and so I, I was like, I, as a, because as a, again, like I said, I am a, I'm a clergy person. I spent like eight years of my life as a pastor. <laughs> so that, that, that informs what I do. So I was like, let me step back and not write this book as an ethicist, but really write it as a practical theologian. And I say that at the beginning, like someone who's committed to doing this kind of theoretical work, which the book has plenty of that, but also is committed to understanding where people are coming from and how people might struggle with some of the arguments that I'm making, because it really is upending their worldviews in different ways. Um, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like when you first read something, and you learn that, oh, this way of um, eating actually harms you and harms your community. I mean, that's not, you're not going to easily take that, you know, you're not going to take that well. And so I decided to really just be honest about, and just to just reframe it and make it more personal and say, okay, this is me. This is me in a book. I talk about this in ways that try to be compassionate and understanding to people. And, and so I'm going to just be honest and, and talk about that and, and allow my own personal journey in the journey of my grandfather and my mother, like my, and to really just shape how I'm going to make the arc of this text. Um, and, I, and I think at the end, it, it came across feeling much more ex- palatable and, ex- and, and accepting. And it feels more like me. And, and um, I like it. You know, I, I like that. I think that was, I think it was ultimately a good choice. There's so much training goes into thinking like an academic and having that sort of scholarly, you know, blade of analyzing texts and making your argument, making sure nobody can disagree with you, or if they can, then they've trapped themselves in some sort of language game that you've put in there for them. And I think it has a lot of uses. I mean, I teach critical thinking to my students, but when I teach classes on critical thinking, one of my big uh, challenges that I take very seriously is not turning my students into sort of well, I mean, like, uh, I don't want to swear on the, on the podcast, but turning them into jerks, let's say, uh, who start to be intellectual bullies, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so having those skills of analysis, but being able to connect your heart to what you're talking about and to other people, I think is so important, but is something that it's, it's easy to lose through the training process of getting your PhD. And food is the issue of the heart. I think that's, that, that, that's what I think as, as I continue to write and learn and connect with talk with people. Like in terms of an individual person, like an individual level, food is an issue of the heart. It's not, you know, like I remember I remember the first time when I first started teaching and I would talk to, I would have honor students in my class and I would, I could make the logical argument that the way they were eating was actually like inconsistent with their morality, but they didn't, that didn't ultimately matter. It was sure. like, yeah, okay, you know, but once I was able to kind of connect it to people and connect it to stories and give them a kind of again, that's the affective dimension of, of what it means to eat and feel a part of a community. That's when I started seeing people really change. Um, and, and so, you know, I think fundamentally it's just different. Yeah. So I think that's really important. And also I like that you are connecting your intellectual academic project to uh, engaged, practical kind of dirty questions, <laughs> because of course there are tools that we can use that can be helpful to deal with those things, but also being engaged with other people, being engaged on concrete practical projects uh, reflects back on our theoretical commitments and makes us better at reasoning through those things. So 100%, I, I agree. And earlier I mentioned, I talked about how my grandfather was kind of like the taste, like person who would taste my, that I, when I cooked for him, I was like, okay, this is like, this is the like, you know, I could, I knew that I could um, persuade people um, that this was kind of a, um, that we could eat this way and it still feel black, right? And so the other 
thing that actually really helped give shape to the book was that uh, when I was a senior pastor of this church in Compton, um, this was the time when I became a vegan, right? During this particular window, it was about 2010. And so uh, I started um, cooking and bringing stuff to the church. And in a black church setting, like whenever the pastor cooks something, which is rare because most clergy are men, um, people are going to eat it. Like that's just really like the pastor or the pastor's wife, you're going to eat it. And so I started bringing in things and then meat in there. And this is before I told them I was a vegetarian and vegan. Um, they were like, you know, so I was like, oh, I made collard greens. And this this collard green recipe has orange juice and raisins in it. And they'd be like, oh, that's kind of weird, but okay. And then they taste it. And they're like, oh, wow, this is this is really good, right? Like, it, it would be surprised. And so uh, I felt like if I was going to do this and really write a book um, that t- made this argument, I need to do it in a way that I was going to be able to convince my grandfather to change or, to, or or at least think that these foods still allowed him to connect to his story because that's a big part of my argument. And then I have to do it in a way that allowed my church community to actually feel like they could do this too, that they could begin to eat this way and they can begin to think this way and they could make this connection. And it's really those two kind of communities that that really influenced, or gave me confidence that I can make this argument that and, and that it could work. Um, when I finish, when the book is published and hopefully we're done with COVID and everything else like that, um, my hope is, uh, well, I'm say my hope, I mean, I will be working on implementing a lot of the stuff I argue in the last, chapter or the yeah the next to last chapter um with local churches here um i'm already in relationship with a lot of them that's the benefit of being a pastor they get to go to all this kind of stuff i know a lot of clergy and um for me i don't write this book isn't written for even for getting tenure you're right it's 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 really like i believe in the arguments i'm making and i really i really want like churches and religious people and communities to read it to wrestle with it and then to engage some of the suggestions that I make, because I think we, I don't, I just, I don't know that we, I don't think we have a choice. <laughs> I just think, as, I think as I continue to look at, as um, you study ecology and what's happening with our planet, we have to be prepared for what I see as the inevitable ways in which our food is going to become much more insecure. And as a black person, I, I know that when, when resources are scarce, the people who are disproportionately impacted are, poor people and black people and indigenous people. Um, and so that's not even like kind of, you know, almost really like, like fear mongering or, or any other, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just history. It's history. Sure. Or, <laughs> and, so or, like, and would that it were only history. I mean, look around at the disparate impacts of the coronavirus exactly. for a, a currently ongoing example. Exactly. You know, and, and, and so, so yeah, like I just, I don't know. I guess I'm one of those scholars who really does see a value in doing work that actually connects with people. Like I don't ever see myself as being someone disconnected to the, from my community. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's right. And the conversation on engaged scholarship is one that keeps coming back up in this podcast and various interviews. So one thing I love about the book is that it takes seriously actual food as <laughs> instead of just abstract <laughs> philosophy food, whatever that is. Uh, you know, your chapters are described as a recipe and you have actual ingredients and actual recipes discussed in the book, um, which is something I try to do in this podcast as well, because I think that sitting down at table with other people, breaking bread with other people just changes the nature of the relationship that we have with one another and changes our sort of openness to things that they have to say. Um, I have a ton of success when I'm teaching the philosophy of food class that I teach in having the students bring food to class and share it with one another. 
um, this semester, our classes are all closed, everything's remote. And so I've had students um, share either recipes or foods that are meaningful to them and discuss that, um, you know, make little video or audio uh, presentations that share with each other, which has actually been very successful. I'll probably keep that aspect of it even when we move back into classes again. So I'd asked you to prepare uh, a recipe that you could discuss that's meaningful to you um, and uh, that you can share with everyone. So what did you prepare for us today? Yeah, so the recipe I wanted to kind of talk about was red beans and rice, which for me was kind of like the first thing I learned how to make after I became vegan that I think if I wasn't able to to make this or make cornbread dressing, or actually my wife makes the vegan cornbread dressing, uh, I probably, it would have been really difficult because for me, my my ancestry is again, Mississippi and Louisiana and, and gumbo and red beans and rice are just like really staples to my childhood. Um, and you know, this is, it's poor people food, quite honestly. I mean, it's, it's beans and rice and just other random things that people put in a pot, but, <laughs> sure. it, but it's, but it's, it's food that feels like home. I mean, that's the best way I describe it. when I moved to California, my wife and I were in grad school. I'm in grad school. She's working, but we're all, you know, it's after the housing market collapses and we sell our house and lose a bunch of money for me to go to grad school for us to be poor again. So, I mean, that's the commitment my wife has to staying with me. Uh, she was willing to <laughs> to take steps back economically, uh, and and so we couldn't afford to go home um, for years. We couldn't afford to go home and visit family, and so food became a way for me to reconnect to feel like I was home. And so, so the way I, I kind of veganized, I guess, red beans and rice um, was to honestly just substitute rather than using andouille sausage or different other kinds of things. I use sausage uh, by Fiegel's Roast. Um, which again, this is where class does come in because field roast is not, I won't say it's not more, it's not that much more expensive than actual sausage, but it may not be accessible in some places, but sure. I, I mean, I live in San Diego, um, uh, but they have a, um, Italian or Mexican Chipotle vegan sausage is like just ridiculously amazing. Um, and so I highly recommend just substituting that. Um, and, and everything else is almost identical <laughs> to what I remember see my grandmother and my grandmother didn't like write down recipes like many grandmothers you just like you just you just cooked and then you ate it and so this was like a, a a this is a combination of a recipe that i got from bryant terry who is a vegan black vegan activist chef so it's a combination of that with what i can taste from my grandmother's uh red beans and rice um <laughs> and just my own particular kind of flavors because i like things tend to be a little bit more spicy so um, you know, it's just kidney beans, um, better than bouillon, vegetable based, which is super accessible to everywhere. I think it's just really, really good. Um, the field roast sausages, um, and, and yeah, white onion, uh, celery, garlic, chili powder, Cajun seasoning, which is more for me. I use a lot of Cajun seasoning, um, <laughs> thyme, uh, different peppers. I like red pepper and orange pepper, um, and green onions just for garnish. Um, and, you know, other than all you have to do is cook rice to go with that. And it is delicious like i served it for people who are avid carnivores um and they're like this tastes really good but i've also like i said this is one of the things i made for my it's one of the first recipes I made for my grandfather and we talked about um that's actually i'll be getting a conversation about um more detailed about how he ate growing up and so it was super i think informative for me to you know i think so much of these conversations actually come up when we're eating food um and and not like in a way of, I know often some vegans are scared to talk about what they eat while they eat with other people. 
But I think for me, my, at least with my grandfather and with my family, it's been much more just invitational. And maybe that's my own family dynamic because I do most of the, I'm doing the cooking, right? And so my family, <laughs> I don't know the other families, but when in my family, when you're the person that's cooking, people are just going to eat. They're like, like if they have, you know, they're not going to complain about what it is they're eating. Otherwise, they can cook themselves, right? So it's very much appreciative of what was being done. Um, and so, and so, yes, yeah, it's brought up a lot of conversations and memories, and and it's been it's been a beautiful thing. And so, um, that's kind of my favorite uh, recipe. Um, I know I shared it with you, and um, I have no problem if you put that on any kind of you know social media or whatever, because it's uh, again, it's it's kind of a combination of a few different things I've come across in my life. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. And for people who want to uh, connect with you or look at some of the things that you're working on, where do you suggest people go? Yeah, so probably easiest way to connect with me is my website is drchristophercarter.com. Um, that has um, links to my Instagram and Twitter, which I'm moderately active on. Um, but also, more than anything, it just has links to like things I've written, um, things that are forthcoming, talks that I've given that are, are you know on YouTube. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and it gives you information how to contact me via email. Um, and yeah, so it talks about, um, I think it's a description of the book. The, as we've been talking about, the spirit of soul food should be out this summer. Well, we'll be out this summer. I don't know when. Um, hopefully early summer. So we're aiming for like uh, May, June. Um, and, and so, yeah, really excited about that. Um, University of Illinois Press. And um, yeah, looking forward to kind of get doing a little book tour thing and kind of go on from there. That's fantastic. Yeah, when the book actually comes out, I'll be sure to have you back on to uh, tell people where we can find you. Oh, yeah, um, that'd be yeah. great. Yeah, so I just want to thank you so much for uh, being on this. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me. That was my conversation with Christopher Carter. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Christopher's website and the beans and rice recipe he shared. If you subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed or if you have feedback on this episode, you can drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 